0: before you, and you did it for the glory of your grace, and you sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us as a pledge, to seal us until we could receive our inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and won't fade away, it's reserved in heaven for us, and you're keeping us for it, and you did it to the praise of your glory. And so we bow before you as we think about this plan of salvation that you came up with and executed and applied to our hearts through the Spirit so that many here this morning know you as our Savior and our God and know we will be praising you forever because you are worthy of endless praise. I pray for anyone who's here today who doesn't know Jesus. Lord, um, not only is this life just incredibly hard without him, but to face eternity without Jesus and to die in sin is just unbearably um, awful. And so we pray that you would show mercy to any who do not know you yet, that they would be drawn to the Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Before we take the Lord's Supper this morning, we're going to look at a text that explains the significance of this ordinance and gives us some clear instructions about how we are to participate. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Lord willing, will be starting Summer Psalms next Sunday. we'll look first at a distortion of the Lord's Supper in verses 17 through 22. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. So the church in Corinth was observing something they called the Lord's Supper, but Paul says they are so out of sync with how they are going about it that it's not really the Lord's Supper. There is so much selfishness and such a lack of love in their gatherings that Paul says, I can't even call it the Lord's Supper. We learn from this passage that the church had a fellowship meal, kind of like we do when we have a potluck meal together. Uh, They would share that first and then have the Lord's Supper. And some would arrive early, but rather than waiting for the rest of the church family to get there, they would just go ahead and start eating the food they had brought. And by the time the other believers got there, the food was all gone, and the latecomers ended up going hungry. And Paul calls them out for this lack of concern for one another. They're just thinking of themselves and their own needs instead of looking out for the needs of others. It's the exact opposite of what he wrote in Philippians 2. If you want to turn over to that. Philippians 2, verse 3 and through 5. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, this mindset in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul says, you're despising the church of God. Despise means to look down on with contempt to regard as unworthy of one's notice or consideration. So they're supposedly remembering Christ who humbled himself and went to the cross, died, who loved the church and gave himself up for her, but their hearts are coldly indifferent to those for whom Christ died. And the apostle says, I can't commend you for that. When you get together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse, You're actually doing more harm than good. And then he reminds them and us what the Lord's Supper is intended to be back in 1 Corinthians 11. So it's connected directly with what precedes it with the word for or because. So I am saying you're out of step. Here's why you're so out of step. For I receive from the Lord For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So first of all, the Lord's Supper is intended to remind us of Christ. Jesus says twice, do this in remembrance of me. In 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul writes, Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, descended of David, according to my gospel. So you would think it would be unthinkable that we as believers would forget to remember Jesus. But 1 Corinthians 11 and 2 Timothy 2 both say, remember Jesus. The Lord knows our frame. He remembers we're dust. He knows we have very weak memories, most of us could attest to that, and we have very distracted minds. And so rather than leaving us to depend on our own good intentions and willpower like, yeah, I'll remember Jesus. Of course I'll remember Jesus. The Lord himself designed the Lord's Supper to deliberately focus our attention on him, to consciously remember him and all that he is as our Redeemer and Lord and our all in all. Left to ourselves, we might not call to mind that Jesus is the pearl of great price that is worth everything. We might not remember to count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. So first, we remember Jesus himself. Second, the Lord's Supper is intended to remind us of the body of Christ being broken For us, Jesus is the eternal Son of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. We find that in John chapter 1. But why did he take on a human body? And this is what Hebrews 10 says about that. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Therefore, when He comes into the world. He is referring to Jesus. Jesus comes into the world. He says, and this is a quote from Psalm 40, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And then verse 10, by this will that Jesus came to do by taking on a body, by this will we have been sanctified, set apart through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So this body that Jesus took, that first Christmas, lived in for 33 years in a perfect life of obedience and submission to the Father, would end up being beaten and scourged and pierced and hung on a cross. Taking the bread helps us remember that this body of Jesus was broken for us. Third, the Lord's Supper is intended to remind us that the blood of Christ was shed for us. 1 Peter 1.18 says this. Knowing that you were not redeemed, set free by the payment of price with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And this blood that was shed, this precious blood, purchased the blessings of the new covenant. So a covenant is an unbreakable, unchangeable commitment. It is a solemn, binding, mutual agreement between two parties that establishes the terms of the relationship. And so Hebrews 8 quotes from Jeremiah 31 to tell us, some of the promises that are included in that new covenant. So if you have your Bible, go to Hebrews 8. Beginning at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying know the Lord for all will know me from the least to the greatest of them for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. So as we take the cup, we're rehearsing the blessings that the blood of Jesus obtained for us. First, the forgiveness of our sins. I'll be merciful to their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. So all of us have sinned against God. Sin is a failure to conform to God's revealed will. So we all sin by omission. We leave undone what God has called us to do. Things like love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And we also sin by commission, crossing lines that God has said not to cross in thought, word, deed, attitude, or motivation. So listen to some more verses from Hebrews about sin and what has to be done with it. So Hebrews nine twenty two. According to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with Blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Chapter 10, verse 4 For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So, sin happens, a death must occur, blood must be shed. And now he's saying, Well, not just any blood will do, blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. We kind of instinctively know that, that that's not a, an equivalency of a, a, an animal for a human soul. So that's impossible. But then listen to 11 and 12. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So what nothing else could do, Jesus did. His blood cleanses us from all of our sins so that God no longer remembers any of them against us. So if you're still in Hebrews, look at Hebrews 10, 17. He quotes from the new covenant again, and he ends up in verse 17. In their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's the first blessing that we're remembering as we take the cup, symbolizing the blood of Christ that was shed for us. We're saying, this blood of Jesus himself bought my forgiveness. It bought my cleansing. I can stand before a holy God, acceptable because of Jesus. No condemnation because of Jesus. Not because of anything I could ever do to get rid of my sin, or animals could do to get rid of my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, as the song says. Second blessing of the new covenant is a new relationship with God himself. Back in Hebrews 8. He shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me. So remember how Jesus defined eternal life? This is eternal life, to know you, the only living God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is a relationship, a personal relationship that begins in this life and then continues forever and ever in heaven with God. And there's nothing more important or valuable than knowing God. Listen to Jeremiah nine twenty-three. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, how smart you are, but not a mighty man boast in his might, how strong you are, Let not a rich man boast of his riches, how much you have, but let him who boasts, if you're going to boast, boast of this, that he understands and knows me. God says that's more important than riches or strength or wisdom or anything else you might have that you might be tempted to boast in. doesn't compare to knowing God himself. Third, a new relationship to God's law. Back in Hebrews again. Verse 10 says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Before the new covenant, the old covenant was a law written on stone and it came up against a heart of stone and there was... Collision, stone on stone. There's a problem here because left to myself, I have no desire and no ability to obey God. Remember Romans 8:7? The natural man does not submit to the law of God for indeed he is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So I have no ability or desire to do what God calls me to do. But God does a miracle. Interestingly enough, in God's providence, Brett mentioned it in his prayer, Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So I don't need just my sins forgiven. I need a new heart that desires to obey God and has an ability to do so. And that's part of the new covenant. God does that for me. So listen to how Hebrews 13 talks about that. This benediction is, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep. How? Through the blood of the eternal covenant. There it is. Even Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do his will working in us that which is pleasing in the sight. So see how that works. Before I didn't want to, I didn't care about obeying God. I didn't want to. I could not do it if I had ideas about doing that. So I get this new heart, I have new abilities, new desires. It was all part of this eternal covenant that was purchased through the blood of Jesus. And now God works in me what's pleasing in his sight. Or if you're here for the Sunday School Appreciation, Brett mentioned Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Fourth, God is now our God, and we are now his people. God does not just save us as individuals. He does It's a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. We can say with Paul, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But that's not just about you. God saves a people for himself. He places us in his family. God is our Father in heaven. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'm in 2 Corinthians at my quiet time this week. 2 Corinthians 6. Listen to these beautiful words. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So, before we, especially Gentiles, we were not a people. But now we're the people of God. Before we had not been shown mercy, but now we've been shown mercy. We've been included in God's people. And one more new covenant blessing that Christ purchased with his blood is the promise of Jeremiah 3240. I invite you to turn to that. Jeremiah 3240. I will make an everlasting covenant, unbreakable, unchangeable commitment, last forever, that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts and look at the outcome, so that they will not turn away from me. So just this week, I was talking to a friend on the phone about a professing believer that we both know who is no longer walking with the Lord. How do we know that won't be us? How do we know we will persevere to the end and not make shipwreck of faith? We don't want to trust our own willpower, our own commitment level. That will will, will fall away, left to ourselves. Our assurance is that God himself has made an everlasting covenant, sealed with the blood of Christ himself, that he will work in our hearts in such a way that we will not turn away from him. He preserves us in faith so that we persevere to the end. And last, the Lord's Supper is intended to remind us of the return of Christ. Paul says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We not only remember the death of Christ, we're proclaiming it, we're publicly announcing that our only hope of forgiveness and eternal life is Jesus and his death. And Paul says we're to keep on observing the Lord's Supper and keep proclaiming what he accomplished through his death until he comes again in his glory. And you'll notice two of the three songs we sang this morning, the last verse was about the Lord's return. Start off singing about the Lord's death and resurrection, but they, the last verse was about he's coming back. We need to be reminded of that. And hymns do that for us, or reading your New Testament will do that for you. But the Lord's Supper is also intended to do that for all of us. Titus 2.13 says looking for that blessed hope, the hope that brings blessing and joy, the glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's the blessed hope. So the Lord's Supper is intended to be a regular, ongoing reminder of Christ himself, his broken body, his shed blood, and his glorious return. And so having rebuked a distortion of the Lord's Supper and rehearsing again for us the significance of the Lord's Supper, what it's meant to be, Paul closes this passage with some instructions about how we are to prepare for observing the Lord's Supper. So back in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27. Therefore, (laughs) and a lot of what you said of what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brother, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. So what does it mean to take the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner. And I think we need to be clear, it doesn't mean we can be worthy of receiving it. We are not and cannot be good enough to deserve to participate in the Lord's Supper. Jesus is the worthy one, not us. If you read Revelation twice in chapter 5, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and blessing and praise. He's the worthy one, not us. It's not ultimately about us. It's about Him. The worthy one died for unworthy sinners like us. In the context of 1 Corinthians 11, unworthy refers to how we take the Lord's Supper, not who can take it. It's taking in an unworthy manner, unworthy way. So it's not about you being qualified or good enough. It's about How do you go about it? What we've seen in verses 17 through 22 is it seems that the main issue is taking part in the Lord's Supper where there's a lack of unity or lack of love. Taking the Lord's Supper in a selfish disregard for the body of Christ, which he purchased with his own blood, is an unworthy way to take it. So here's Wayne Grudem's view of what's going on in verse 29. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. The problem at Corinth was not a failure to understand that the bread and cup represented the body and blood of the Lord. They certainly would have known that. The problem, rather, was their selfish, inconsiderate conduct toward each other while they were at the Lord's table. They were not understanding or discerning the true nature of the church as one body. This interpretation is supported by Paul's mention of the church as the body of Christ just a bit earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So the phrase, not discerning the body, means not understanding the unity and interdependence of people in the church which is the body of Christ. It means not taking thought for our brothers and sisters when we come to the Lord's Supper at which we ought to reflect his character. Another way to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner would be taking it in just a casual, careless way, just going through the motions without thinking about what we're doing. There's multiple ways to do it, but the one point Here is, we're to take the Lord's Supper seriously because the Lord takes it very seriously. Look at the consequences of not taking the Lord's Supper seriously. For this reason, many among you, not just a few, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep, which means you died. So just think about a lot of people from our church family all starting to feel kind of weak getting sick all about the same time and no one can figure out what's going on. I mean, we had a flu bug go through the whole church family a few weeks ago. That was a real picnic and um, or, you know, back a few years, you know, the super spread events, you know, remember, all the excitement about those. So here's something going on. Everybody's, all these people are sick. Nobody knows why and it, Turns out there's a, a special clinic that specializes in these sort of mysterious illnesses. So everyone goes to the clinic and gets tested, and the results come back that the reason for all this sickness and all this weakness in our church body is a failure to take the Lord's supper seriously. Wouldn't that be something? Not only that, think of some of our church family dying unexpectedly. Just Drop over. And and because it was so unexpected, so surprising, autopsies are done, and the results of the autopsies all come back. Failure to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. That would get our attention. I think we'd probably take the Lord's Supper pretty seriously after that. Right? And hopefully it doesn't come to that. But Paul says those kind of consequences are the Lord's discipline. And we, of course we see that in Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so Paul says the alternative to that is You're either disciplined by the Lord or you're condemned along with the world. Those are the choices. So it's a mercy that God does chastise and discipline those who take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner rather than the condemnation the world will receive. And so in light of that, Paul tells us in verse 28, a man must examine himself. I believe that includes examining three important things. First, as he will say in the second letter addressed to this same group of professing believers meeting in a local church, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail the test. So Paul's saying to a group of gathered, professing believers in a local church, just like this, don't just assume you're a believer. Check it out. Take the test. Is there any confirming evidence that you're really in Christ and that Christ is in you? And if you can say, because the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit, that you're a child of God, Romans 8.16, then you are welcome to take part this morning with us in the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of Morningside Baptist Church. You need to know Christ. If you're trusting Christ alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life, you're welcome to take part in this ordinance remembering him and what he accomplished. But if you're not sure you would pass the test... Acknowledge you're a sinner. We already talked about that. All have sinned. All of us have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. And so the Bible calls us to turn from going our own way in disregard of God, just being very content to live without him, and turn from that way that leads to death and destruction and turn back to God. In Isaiah 55, God Invites those who are not on the right path. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. God, in his mercy, has provided a way for sinners like us to be restored to him. He sent Jesus to die on a cross as our substitute. That's what we've been talking about all morning and singing about all morning. Jesus came and died for sinners. And he raised him from the dead to show that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost, which means completely and forever, those who come to God through him. And so believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. A second thing to examine, assuming you do know Christ would be to ask if there are any barriers in my relationship with the Lord. Are there any unresolved issues that need to be dealt with? We can ask the Holy Spirit to do a spiritual checkup to identify anything that needs to be addressed in our hearts. And so in Psalm 139, we could pray like this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful or grievous or sinful way in me and lead me in everlasting way. So remember, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The next phrase is, who can know it? And the answer is, only God knows our hearts. We don't even know our own hearts. Don't follow your heart, as the uh, slogan goes in Disney movies or the rest of the world. Your heart is going to lead you astray 99% of the time. So we need God to search our hearts, examine our hearts, show us. Is there something out of whack here, Lord? Show me. And then get that taken care of. And a third to examine in light of what we've seen this morning would be we'd want to examine our horizontal relationships. Are there any unresolved issues in our relationships with God's people? Do we need to go and talk with a brother or sister? Jesus said in Matthew 5, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, you reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering so if that's true before bringing an acceptable offering in worship how much more would it be true before coming to the lord's table and so we're going to take a few moments now to examine ourselves in those categories asking the holy spirit to show us if anything needs attention and then i will close us in prayer after a few moments so let's pray silently together Lord, thank you for this opportunity this morning to take your supper. Thank you for the massive truths that it reminds us of, this basic core realities about Christ and his death and his resurrection and his return. Lord, we're just so thankful that you opened our eyes to our need for Jesus. You opened our hearts and changed them so that we would embrace Jesus. And so, Lord, we bow before you and we pray that you would draw near as we draw near to you during this time together. Lord, we know your presence is with us all the time. Your presence is with us in a special way when two or three are gathered in your name in a way we don't fully understand, your presence seems to draw near when we take part in this bread and cup. And so I pray that we would be very aware of you being near us during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing Behold the Lamb.